This is both an exciting time and a complicated time to be leading a healthcare organization. In the U.S. and elsewhere, population management is the newest kid on the block, and that has all sorts of implications for leaders, requiring shifts in mindset, behaviors, and operations, plus the formation of strategic alliances to take shared responsibility for the cost and care of groups of patients. This isn't a matter of simply mapping tried and true practices onto more or different people, however the population is defined. It's a matter of wholly new ways of providing the highest quality and most cost-effective care possible, and ultimately improving outcomes for better known and better understood populations of patients. There's nothing else to do but dig in, and we have a great panel assembled here to discuss what they're learning about leading and leaning into population management. That's all ahead on this edition of WIHI. And I want to welcome you to WIHI. We're an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We're in our sixth year of coming to you biweekly, and also you can catch us later on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. Population management, as we'll be talking about it today, isn't something you can learn about in a textbook, at least not yet. The skills and knowledge are being developed as we speak by clinicians, the folks in finance, HIT, the people running community-based programs, primary care practices, hospitals, by patients and families themselves. If you like to use Twitter, we welcome your tweets during or after today's program. Thanks for using at the IHI in your tweets. And I want to welcome everybody. About a 1,000 of you, or actually more like 1,200 of you, enrolled for today's program. And many of you are still getting on board. And boy, weather.com move over because Here's the weather report on our chat today. You're not only telling us where you're from, but what's the weather. And uh, we're glad to have that picture as well. I want to now briefly introduce our guests and a reminder that longer bios are on the WIHI web pages. Joining us from, I think she's in New York City today, is Jenny Chin Hansen. She's the Chief Executive Officer of the American Geriatrics Society, the nation's leading membership organization of geriatrics healthcare professionals. Prior to this, she was CEO for Unlock Inc., which went on to become the prototype for the federal program of all-inclusive care to the elderly, known as Pace. Welcome, Jenny. Thank you. All right, wonderful. Gordon Moore is a national leader in improving health care and in primary care and medical office practices. He is the chief medical officer for Trio Solutions, a wholly owned subsidiary of 3M, where he helps governments, insurers, and healthcare delivery systems structure environments and programs in pursuit of the triple aim. Welcome, Dr. Gordon Moore. Thank you very much. All right, it's great, great that you're here. Clay Ackerley is also with us, um, possibly down the street today, but he's on the phone, is a primary care physician with a special interest in the needs of older adults. In addition to his clinical work, Dr. Ackerley is the Associate Medical Director for Population Health and Continuing Care at Partners Healthcare in Boston. He's also Assistant Chief Medical Officer for Non-Acute Services at the Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Ackerley recently served as an Innovation Advisor to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Welcome, Clay. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Wonderful. And here in the studio with me is Trissa Torres. She's Senior Vice President at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, focused on several strategic areas, including the pursuit of the IHI Triple Aim, the transformation of primary care, and engaging community partners to improve the health of populations and communities. Dr. Torres served for 18 years as Medical Director of Genesis HealthWorks at Genesis Health System in Michigan. Welcome, Trissa. Hello, everyone. All right. Well, Trissa gets the first question. And Trissa, we all know how to quickly say we're moving from fee-for-service to risk-based payments. Uh, But what does that actually imply from a population management uh, perspective? And I'm curious, what is it that leaders need to be wrapping their minds around our discussion today that perhaps leaders weren't expected to before? 
Thanks, Madge. Um, really, when I think of our opportunity that's created by risk-based contracting, to me, it really opens up an opportunity for me to tr- for us to transform care the way we've been wanting to transform care anyway. Uh, historically, in our fee-for-service system, um, it was really a sick-based system, and we were set up to take care of people when they were sick. When they showed up in our offices or when in our hospitals, we would care for them based on their immediate needs and try to address their immediate needs. But with this new kind of contracting system, it gives us an opportunity to think about people over their entire lifespans, what their needs are throughout the lifespan, particularly to address the issues of chronic care and preventive care, and think of that in a longitudinal way, uh, and really not only think about the populations of people that we serve, but also the communities that we serve. One thing that uh, I think it really helps us in our pursuit of the triple aim. So we think about absolutely we have to drive costs out of the system and bring costs down. We all know what an imperative that is, but that can't be done in isolation. We have to simultaneously improve the care that we deliver so that people are receiving the best quality, safest care that brings them satisfaction and helps them feel like they're engaged in their own care, but ultimately we have to improve the outcomes for our patients and the outcomes for our communities. Okay, very good. I'm curious, was this population management something Thing that's been sort of weaving in and out of all of IHI's work on the triple aim over the years? I mean, were people kind of running up against almost limitations of what they might be able to do because didn't hadn't quite gathered together some of the skill sets and uh, what, what is encompassed in this? So absolutely. So um, many of us and many of you around the country have been thinking about how to optimize outcomes for populations of patients uh, for many, many years. And at IHI, through our triple aim work that started over eight years, ago, we've really been trying to build up the capacities and capabilities to be able to do this and working with our partners. But many of the problems that we ran into, one of the biggest ones was the payment system was not aligned. So now with the opportunity of the uh, payment system being aligned, we have a chance to really accelerate this work. And so there's some organizations that have been leaders in this and have developed many skills and overcome many barriers, but there's others who are just starting on this journey. And so there's an opportunity for people to really learn from each other and to really learn their way through this transformation. Okay, great. All right, Trissa, thank you. And thanks, everybody uh, who's joining us. We're going to move along uh, here from all of our guests this first half hour. Start thinking about some of your own questions and comments. And uh, as we said in promoting this program, we want to hear from you as to what you're doing to kind of move more in this direction. Uh, time to share your ideas as well. So I'm going to turn to Jenny Chin Hansen now. Next, uh, Jenny, the organization that you lead, the American Geriatric Society, well, it's filled with healthcare professionals who, it makes sense in a way, have been thinking about the needs of the older population for a long time, and you have a career that's been very attuned to seeing the whole person in the older person. On the other hand, there's a changing mindset that's needed now for all populations, not just older populations. So how would you characterize what this entails in these kind of shifting times? And welcome again, Jenny Chin Hansen. Um, thank you, Madge, and thanks for the key up, Trissa. Trissa. Um, one of the things, you know, when Trissa mentioned we're moving away from the fee-for-service uh, care, you know, another way I characterize it as I look at it from a population perspective is that, um, you know, we, we're coming from a place-based care approach or transactions of care, and we think about that in terms of locations. Um, when we think about people living in communities, uh, the, I think one of the ways of characterizing this shift is that it will be place-based health and living um, more than it is about uh, illness care. So um, I think that's going to be a, a key transition, uh, thinking about it from uh, a community perspective um, and the range of people who live in a community. The, uh, our careers, oftentimes in terms of our professional training, are, are based on skills and particular roles. And that, of course, will still hold in the future. But as we think about who the populations are, and um, I mentioned um, certainly that my, my work has been, excuse me here, <clears throat> Um, with uh, older populations, that has been a, a particular uh, 
subpopulation of the total population that we focus on a great deal and certainly those of us who are providing care. And when we think about that, what is interesting in terms of getting prepared for it for the future, since this is the fastest growing demographic in the country with 10,000 of us turning 65 uh, every day and, and the fastest growing population actually is the 85 plus, many of us were not really prepared uh, clinically and um, knowledge-wise for this population as we went through our training. So I think one of the things that's going to be very key is uh, just understanding uh, the specific uh, uh, events, uh, clinical issues that happen to older people, and uh, that's uh, one part of getting ready for a, a population. Um, the kinds of things that happen to older people who um, ha- have different health issues include clinical uh, factors of falls or uh, delirium, uh, multiple medications. And those of us who work in hospital settings probably recognize that anywhere from 40 to 60% of the people who uh, come into the hospitals and are discharged are older individuals. So um, I think that kind of knowledge preparation is extremely key, uh, for one. Secondly, um, one of the things, uh, the other area that I, I think is extremely important is to begin to think beyond the walls of these place-based care uh, uh, locations we oftentimes affiliate with, whether it's outpatient clinics, um, uh, home health agencies even, and certainly uh, places like hospitals. And um, thinking beyond the four walls is something that is probably very different for us because we tend to do our specific functions of care very carefully while we're in our respective uh, four walls. But we don't have the framework of thinking about really um, the third point I I wanted to bring up is the population. And again, uh, if I use the the example of an older population, um, their goal isn't necessarily about coming and staying in our hospital. I mean, um, their goal is also not even about, say, staying in uh, their post-acute facility. And let's take one hospital episode that is, say, four days in the hospital, seven days perhaps in post-acute, but they still have 354 days of living in that year. So their whole goal is the ability to stay as, as functional and as stable as possible so that they can live their lives. And because of that way of thinking, it does take a very different framework of thinking about a population. And um, and for us thinking about, um, well, gee, my responsibility is only uh, within this particular location, um, but the, the uh, that's when we think about our role and our particular responsibility. If we're thinking about the population, our goal is to help them live um, as as independently and functionally as possible. And let me, um, um, you know, say that one good example of thinking beyond the four walls, the new partnerships that we will have will possibly not be just our own traditional professional organizations. Um, one good example of something that has happened uh, in Nashville, and some of you may be already uh, on the call from there, uh, they're aware of the con- Congregational Health Network that has employed 500 churches to help in the whole aspect of helping people when they get discharged. And this is prior even to the Transitions of Care program we know so well about. But it's having the community um, work together with the hospital systems to be able to help people stay as, as well as possible. So I'd summarize um, by saying that, you know, there's, there's probably a, a real um, kind of shift in time. We uh, probably come from an assembly uh, approach of care, of, of doing our, our segments of work, which were important, um, moving to what I would call um, in sports the relay race, making sure things are handed off, that 
the baton is held uh, handed off well. And then we have um, very complex people uh, that we might manage, and the importance of having a um, a basketball team or soccer team approach to that. And, and you know, we all have our our roles and our plays, but when something doesn't go quite right, the the team still knows what direction we're moving in. You know, whether it's a basketball team or a soccer team, and somebody else can quote score the goal, but the goal is kind of the joint goal. And so if we think about this, and, and I uh, hope that in the course of uh, Gordon's talking about data, uh, the kind of knowledge that we're going to need um, to manage and, and oversight uh, populations may include different data points that we don't measure right now. Hmm. And one concrete example I would give would be that um, as, as excited as many of us are, joke, joke, uh, relative to our electronic medical record systems in our institutions, um, sometimes we don't collect you know, some important socio data, uh, like whether or not the person lives alone. Because if a person is known to be living alone without any supports, the likelihood of that person not staying stable is going to be extremely high. So I think we're going to have to have a mind frame of thinking about other data elements as we look at population management in terms of helping them stay as stable as possible. Thank you so much. Stop with that. Okay, great. Sorry. Thank thank you, Jenny. Lots of good food for thought there. And a nice uh, segue over to uh, Gordon Moore. Um, And I want to thank people who've already begun to do some chatting. We will uh, address, uh, Gordon started to chat in uh, to uh, one question, but we'll address some of this. uh, That's what what the scroll is about uh, when we turn to that right at the um, halfway mark of the program. So, Gordon Moore, one of the things um, you are known for, among others, is helping organizations, whether hospitals, primary care settings, or community settings, figure out the data they need and what data they need to be sharing to be responsible stewards of populations, specific populations. So there's that valuable individual patient data, and then there's that step of understanding the, con- the connections between many patients and connecting the dots. So what are you figuring out and helping people with uh, when it comes to data and population management? And thanks again for being with us. Thanks, Madge. Uh, I'm, I'm working in environments at scale. What I mean is that we're uh, helping to create environments for accountable care organizations with uh, hundreds of possibly thousand or more physicians and crossing entire states, working with state governments. And so we're looking and using data sets that can cover the entire patient population experience in pursuit of the triple aim. And in the triple aim, we're trying to have an impact on the cost curve through better care delivery and experience of care. So we have to be able to reflect the cost curve. To do that, the only data set right now that makes sense is to start with claims. And it's not perfect, but it's well known. Its imperfections are relatively obvious, and we can manage most of the imperfections. So that's that's where we start. We use claims to then create a risk profile for an individual that identifies a total illness burden. Um, Right now you see a slide that's showing a bubble for a large population, and the bubbles each represent the size of the population. And on the horizontal axis, you see the total medical expenditure. On the vertical axis, you see the medical expenditure for potentially preventable events like uh, unnecessary hospitalization, readmission, and the like. And people with two or more conditions represent in the upper right corner a small part of the population, but a very high portion of the medical expenditure and the potentially preventable spend. The reason that's up there is that um, one of the things that we often do in healthcare is that we perceive disease as the be-all and end-all of what we have to fix and the problem that we have to solve, and so we invest in guidelines. But as Jenny was alluding to, there's a lot more to understanding individuals and their needs than just their disease. Disease, of course, is important, but we have to figure out and work with disease within the context of that individual in their local environment, in their community. And when we can get to other determinants and consistently and reliably get them on the table, we're able to then better manage those. We're doing a project with the state of Iowa. Medicaid, for instance, where they have 
uh, they're putting in place a health risk assessment that will systematically measure uh, from the individual's perspective their risk factors around, do I believe my meds are making me ill? Do I have the social support I need at home to manage my conditions? Do I understand what's going on? So speaking to that individual capacity that we can call uh, patient activation, self-management support, or whatever label we want to put on it. So those data sets, claims adding to laboratory and EMR data, adding to patient-level reported uh, risk factors as well as outcomes, I see as the essential data set over time as we learn to manage risk at the individual level and as we segment individuals into groups that need special attention and resources, and then as we score the events and look for uh, markers of success. Um, one, we, we spend a lot of time thinking about how do we focus limited resources in, uh, in a population as we begin to address where we're going to apply interventions. The slide you're looking at now shows total illness burden broken out on the left-hand side by their representation of the population and on the right-hand side by the percent of total medical expenditure. And when we look at disease as a single driver of medical expenditure and population and total cost, you see that the uh, disease is represented by lots of little uh, colored bars to the right of the uh, red bar. The red bar represents no single disease, but the multiplicity of diseases is a biggest driver. And we know that from Barbara Starfield's data and lots of other data that shows the total illness burden and not just the condition per se is what drives bad outcomes and drives medical expenditure. So there's much more, again, in this slide. And, and then there's another study by uh, Bernstein and others that looks at a population of people with diabetes and breaks them out by their uh, probability of hospitalization. Uh, per thousand people per year. So this is all people with diabetes, and you see uh, ranked in the total illness burden from top uh, healthy to the bottom row of catastrophic from the left side, the low severity to the right side, high severity, that very low severity people with just diabetes alone, well, maybe 26, 000, uh, 26 people out of 1,000 would be admitted to the hospital in a year, but with the catastrophic conditions and the highest severity, uh, 2,400 plus, would be uh, admitted a year, the 2,400 admissions. So the, there's an incredible amount of heterogeneity in conditions. So the data set that I see being most useful, again, starts with claims. As imperfect as it is, it covers the entire population who are insured, obviously, and obviously with the Affordable Care Act, the ranks of insured is swelling and the uninsured is shrinking, thank goodness. Um, and this gives us then insight into segmentation as we use total illness burden as a way to identify risk and then further nuance that with information that we can gather from individuals or EMRs uh, and uh, from laboratory. The risk, I want to point out one other way of thinking about risk and opportunity. We often spend all, most of our time thinking about the patient and the individual. Uh, and then thinking about segments of patients and individuals. And that's one level of risk and intervention, obviously very important. But we need to step back and also look at the clinician uh, and think about what can we know about a clinician and how would we then segment clinicians and rank them by their uh, ability to support or impede population health outcomes because we know from Barbara Starfield's work and others that uh, higher low-performing primary care, for instance, is going to have an impact on the outcomes. So we want to be able to segment uh, people uh, segment the clinicians. Uh, patient experience data set can be very helpful for that when we start to find out from the patient's experience their ability to gain access to care in a timely manner, whether or not there's wasted time in the office practice and other factors that are practice and clinician-based factors that, again, help or impede. The third level uh, that we need to think about is how systems work and what can we know about and how could we look at opportunities in a system. We look at the interface between primary and secondary care. We look at institutions and the facility with which they communicate with their neighborhood of referring uh, practices and clinicians and how well they engage in community-based resources that can support population health outcome. So we think about care delivery at the patients, the clinician, and at the system level and use data sets like claims, again, uh, and, and other data sets to inform our ability to create segmentation at those three different levels and then provide intervention. Hmm. 
Very, very interesting. A lot in there. And uh, I hope uh, folks have some questions. Uh, Gordon, thank you very much. I appreciate uh, your remarks. We all do. And uh, let's get Clay Ackerley in here now uh, before we go to chat. And Clay, and hear from you. Um, I seized on the fact that you've got population health in your title, <laughs> which I think is a growing uh, trend uh, reflecting a bunch of things. But I thought I would ask you what, what that really means for you at Partners Healthcare, what's new about some of your responsibilities. And the thing we wanted you to maybe unpack for us a bit is this ability as a leader to think in the present, near term, and further down the road in terms of payment models and strategies uh, with all the things that we're talking about today. Sometimes the present seems very much with us (laughs) Uh, and uh, can impede, speaking about uh, impeding as a uh, Gordon was just saying, you know, what kinds of things get in the way of our being to actually, you know, getting to population management. So we appreciate uh, your experiences and uh, any thoughts. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And I first just want to say uh, thank you for the listeners. I know a lot of people out there listening who've helped me on my quality improvement journey, either directly or indirectly. So thank you. And uh, Matt, thank you for inviting me today. Um, you know, probably a population health does uh, mean a lot of different things to different people. Uh, my position at Partners Healthcare, you know, we now have risk contracts that cover over 500,000 individuals, Pioneer ACO, commercial ACO, uh, as well as our self-insured population. Uh, so we, at a central corporate level, have developed uh, an infrastructure to help support the clinical strategies um, to help meet the, uh, the contracts that we've signed, um, uh, as well as partnering with our local uh, care institutions. Um, and I'm also, as, as you mentioned, Assistant Chief Medical Officer at Mass General Hospital, uh, and I wear a hat there um, looking at our partnerships with our post-acute providers and looking at creating value for post-acute care in the hospital. Therefore, you know, I do see, you know, the, the common, the now common um, analogy of having your feet in two canoes uh, I have my feet firmly planted in two canoes. Um, <laughs> the rest of that, you know, saying goes: if you have your feet in two canoes, you'll likely end up wet. Um, and we're trying to, to figure this out. Um, setting the stage a little bit, I do have to say, you know, the, the work that the IHI has done in setting the triple aim and getting that out there has been remarkable. But I do want to say something that's somewhat controversial: this is not and should not be about bending the cost curve. Right? And I think it should be about creating a business case for population health and quality. Right? Whether or not that is truly cost-neutral or cost-savings or cost-effective, uh, that's a societal decision that's outside of our hands. But as was noted earlier, this is an exciting time because we now have a business case to do the right thing to meet un- previously unmet needs. Um, but we are struggling a little bit with, you know, how do you sequence all of these events? Um, there are risks. Um, you know, we do risk going back into the 90s and the HMO backlash. So how are we engaging with our patients? How are we showing them that this is not about cost cutting? This is about giving them more of what they want and need to stay healthy and at home. It's also about engaging with specialists, not just with patients. So how do you talk with someone who has in this still being paid within your organization on a fee-for-service basis about what this means for them, about appropriateness of care, about increasing access to their care, not decreasing access, but if you increase access to appropriate services, that is what patients want, and you know, ultimately that's part of the professional ethic of specialists as well. You know, And then there is this issue of the financial, uh, the direct financial losses if population health is successful as you decrease volume in a traditionally volume-based world. Um, and this is where all organizations are going to have uh, challenges, you know, we clinically take a payer-blind approach um, to the programs that we're putting into place. Another issue with sequencing is how much are you piloting versus taking a scale and when do you turn on scale. Uh, That scale needs to be on how much risk you take. So how much risk are you willing to take before you can prove you can be sustainable within the terms of that contract? So, yes, the contracts that are signed now are mostly about bending the cost curve. But really looking down the pike, you know, this is not, everybody knows the Pioneer ACO and ACO models is a transitional period. But what does that long-term sustainable world look like where if we are providing value, lower cost or higher cost, but true value to keep patients independent and healthy, 
that that will be rewarded, and we you know have that leap of faith. Um, so I look forward to um, answering uh, everybody's questions as, as best we can. <laughs> but I think it is about you know a little bit of a leap of faith, but knowing that this is the right thing to do, and we're very fortunate to um, have the chance to do this. Thank you so much, uh, Clay, and uh, thanks to all of you who've started uh, to chat in. And we always love controversy, healthy controversy on on WIHI. Kind of wakes us up uh, if uh, we were tending to uh, you know kind of t- take a one second cat nap. Um, I want to just give each of you an opportunity to before we head over to chat. Um, is there anything that you've heard from any of the others so far that you'd like to uh, comment on? Uh, um, Trissa, or uh, it just kind of your reflections uh, and um, anything quickly, and then we can go to chat. Go ahead. Yeah, this is Trissa. Thanks, everyone. It's uh, so exciting uh, so far, even to think from all the different perspectives this impacts, you know, thinking from the clinician's perspective, from the patient's perspective, from the administrative perspective and the financial perspective, and from the data perspective, and how all those pieces have to fit together. Um, I did already see one question that I wanted to kind of highlight uh, in relationship to Clay's comments, and as we do have one foot in both worlds, um, and when systems start to see their admissions or their readmissions come down, oftentimes that is a direct threat to their bottom line, and one of the approaches that's sometimes taken relative to that is to increase their footprint and to go serve more and more patients in order to make up for the fact that we're reducing admissions or readmissions. And so I saw a question earlier that um, asked something to the extent of if we are increasing our footprint and bringing more people into the system, is that actually going to have a negative effect in terms of access or increased provider or increased panels that providers have to see? And are we ultimately going to start to make things worse before they get better? And one of the ways that I think about addressing that problem, because clearly that is a risk that we want to avoid, is really thinking about optimizing the team and the team approach to care. So when we think of the physician um, as the only one who can interact with the patient, that is going to get us into trouble. There's only so much physician time to go around, and we can't just keep piling more and more patients and more and more obligations onto each clinician. But when we think and when we apply a whole team approach, and this transition is difficult. It doesn't happen overnight. But when we build a whole team, including behavioral health, as some comments came up to that, when we bring an integrated team approach to caring for the patients, ultimately that should be better for all of us as clinicians because we spread the burden. But it should ultimately be better for patients as well because patients then actually have a much broader level of support to come to bring to their care. There isn't just one person they rely on for help or for advice, but they have a whole team, and that team may be in the practice and or may spread out into the community and be an even much broader team. And I think that does also speak to leveraging you know, multiple different types of um, professions um, and non-professionals uh, in, in how we, again, create that broader care team. Okay, thanks very much, Trissa. Uh, anyone else? Uh, we're, 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 the, the chat questions are coming in, so maybe the, that will be our fodder. I just want to, um, uh, Jenny, did you hear anything uh, that you wanted to reflect on quickly? Well, uh, thank you, uh, Madge. I, I think I'd like to just amplify on, on Trissa's comment because I saw some of the uh, questions uh, address the points she brought up. But I think that... Um, Ultimately, the ability to deploy um, our people resources in, in the most um, effective manner, and so the uh, ultimate result of you know the, the the best care in the right place for the for the person um, could be managed differently, so that we don't uh, just as we've had siloed healthcare um, structures, we've had. Uh, professions that also have uh, understandably grown up with some perimeters. And if we can uh, step above that to think about, uh, somebody brought up how to deploy, you know, uh, people's skills at the highest level, uh, as well as thinking about um, some of the areas that are more about uh, mental health and mental well-being. Um, there, there are opportunities that uh, that are that are available, including areas of technology. I know that we haven't brought up, but um, it does call for some um, opening of deploying our resources so that we don't just have more volume of people coming in in order to make up for the financial difference. 
Thanks very much. Okay, thanks, uh, Jenny. All right, John, I think people basically got the hang of the chat, but let's just make sure we've got everybody uh, clear on, on how to participate. Go ahead. Yeah, of course. Uh, make sure that you're uh, chatting to all participants in the Send to Bar down in the chat. That way everybody in the room and everybody on the phone in WebEx can see what you're asking. All right, thanks so much. And if you happen to be on a phone line only, just a reminder that you can grab the slides uh, and also all the materials will be on the website tomorrow in our archive uh, edition of, of this program. But you can also get some immediate things from Im- if you email info at IHI.org if you're on the phone right now. All right, quite a few, an interesting question. And um, I'm going to just start with one of them, uh, which I thought was sort of interesting. Interesting. Somebody asked, what do we think ACOs are going to be transitioning to? Um, which just is a reminder in a way that we're um, kind of in, we're in a, we're on some continuum and we're not entirely sure we've got all the models right. But as Clay was saying, we're trying to build the business models that meet the needs right now for, Clay, do you uh, <laughs> want, want to pick up on that one? Um, sure. Uh, great question. I wish I had a, a, an easy answer for that. And uh, um, recognizing the, the fact that this will be on the IHI website and the number of individuals on the call, I want to say that I speak for myself alone. <laughs> I do not speak for Partners Healthcare, nor do I speak for CMMI or the government. Um, you know, I think this issue of payer-provider convergence, uh, imagine I think you, you got it right. It's... It, um, we don't know where this is going. I think the issue, the fundamental issue, though, of uh, year-over-year shared savings based on a reference population um, is unsustainable. Particularly if that reference population suddenly becomes your own population, and as you are successful, right, your own ability to, to, to save and reinvest goes away because you have to r- realize that this baseline is based on the expenditures in this existing world of fee-for-service. So if you do partner with behavioral health or with community services, you know, the AAAs and others, those dollars don't get captured in the baseline. Uh, So you're building an infrastructure with real value and cost, but it's not captured. And as you start avoiding hospitalizations, you put yourself into a death spiral. So I think whether or not it's you know, movement to full capitation or other movements, and then how do we have a dialogue about increasing that capitation amount, doing better risk adjustment um, to um, target uh, the programs to those who really need it. So I think we have to move probably, this is my own personal opinion, more to full risk and then actually enter that dialogue so that capitated amount doesn't continually decrease but actually can increase as you improve uh, the care infrastructure. Okay. Thanks, Trissa. Yeah, and this is Trissa. Uh, and thank you, Clay. And ultimately, I think the good news is is that there's a lot of people thinking about this and trying to anticipate where we are going to go next. We know that um, that the payment models that we're in right now are transitional payment models. And but part of what we're ultimately going to have to move toward when Clay talked about capitation is probably a much broader cap that looks at um, things that we don't even currently pay for. Uh, and and this is going to be attractive over time as we start to figure it out, but it will take several iterations, and we'll learn as we go um, in individual communities as well as across the nation. But so, for example, right now, you know, going back to the care of the elderly patient, you know, it may be that one of the things an uh, elderly patient needs and, and would ultimately keep them keep their highest quality of life is having food delivered to them in their home. And right now, those types of services are funded and taken care of um, outside the healthcare delivery system. Yet that could be something that optimizes that patient's health and reduces other unnecessary medical expenses. So when we start to think in that whole, um, then the way the dollar flows is going to also have to change. I think that um, the way I think about it, though, is that we're we're moving in the right direction, and this is a step in that direction. Okay. Thanks so much. There are several uh, questions about different aspects of behavioral health. Uh, in one instance, somebody is talking about some resistance from uh, 
physicians uh, were, were, you know, they're all kind of, some of these comments and questions are swirling around the fact that this obviously has to be part of the plans and the integration and the model. Um, I'm not quite sure what's the sharpest question to ask here, but I'm wondering, um, Gordon, to you, how much are, you talked about data, um, and we don't have to only have you talk about data, but in your engagements around these things, what are you learning about some of the kind of best approaches um, around behavioral health, uh, kind of at the delivery end, and maybe even in terms of information and getting people also on board? Probably no surprise to anybody listening uh, that when we sew the head back on the body, we start to see a, a better individual, and we may have a better chance of helping that individual if they're having difficulties. That means that we have to think about how we overcome programs that carve the head off, uh, that separate um, medical from behavioral, uh, because that's that's problematic. So. What I'm seeing around the country are programs that are beginning to uh, step in that direction where there's a potential for full capitation for entities that are uh, that have the capacity to step up. So, for instance, behavioral health organizations are stepping up and saying, we're going to take on primary care delivery in addition, and we're going to try to take care of all the medical problems plus the behavioral health problems for the population attributed to us. And on the other side, there are uh, medical providers who are stepping up and saying, we, we're going to grow or join. Uh, with mental health capacity and bring that together. And there's some terrific examples. For instance, South Central Foundation in Anchorage, Alaska, uh, Native uh, uh, Health Service has done a phenomenal job in bringing uh, behavioral health into primary care at a level which begins to address uh, the full burden of need in the population that they care for. It's a big step. Uh, it, it involves really fundamental changes in payment in what we measure, how we do our work, and how teams work together. The work of the behaviorists at the front lines in South Central is very little direct care delivery and much more around facilitating the care delivery through the rest of the team. Those kind of models are fascinating to me, and I see them being the successful models that would uh, spread under new payment models uh, as we put the head back on the body. Okay, thanks. Uh, anyone else uh, want, want to comment at all on the behavioral health piece? Uh, we can kind of move on to some other questions. If not, it's it's germane. It's germane, and I think we're going to continue to um, work on this. There's also a theme running through the chat around patient engagement, and um, and of course... Somewhere in all of this, we continue to talk about co-designing with patients and families and trying to um, take into account also the patient experience and what they're telling us. Gordon uh, said something, a couple people on today's program, I love it, said, I'm going to say something that's controversial, and I kind of <laughs> we sort of raised up our arms and cheers, uh, that, you know, patients are, may experience barriers uh, that could be impeding um, their own desires uh, for better health, etc. Um, Jenny, can I pick on you uh, for for some of this around kind of patient engagement and where this fits in in this heady world of risk contracts and databases, etc. Um, well, well, sure. I, you know, I, something I uh, mentioned uh, probably uh, in my earlier segment, but uh, the ability to, to uh, listen to what's important. And I think, uh, you know, the example, uh, if, whether it's Clay or Gordon said this, uh, put the head back on the body is to really uh, come at this uh, in a, um, a much more focused way, not not kind of dissecting it only from the standpoint of the payment systems per se, because then what happens is, you know, it leads us to an understandable track, which I know we have to consider, but it's like going back to core mission of, of providing care, and, um, and even some of the studies that have shown that when you do really understand what people uh, need as well as their then fuller understanding of the issue at hand. So oftentimes people don't go quotes for more uh, as is feared, but uh, for an appropriate kind of intervention. I, I wanted to, you know, kind of um, bring you back for those of you who are, are interested in how a, a full risk capitation model can work is uh, to share with you um, the website uh, called NPA Online. It's the National Pace Association Online uh, dot org. 
And um, right now, the PACE full integration model uh, does exist in over 30 states and 100 organizations around the country. And these are people who have taken that leap um, of, of being fully responsible, inclusive, as was brought up, of meals. And, and, uh, and, and that is then captured into the total cost. So there are some opportunities, uh, and, and even this model will include um, behavioral health care uh, and dental care and eyeglasses and, and hearing aids and things like that that help people stay well. So it is kind of this jump to thinking about stuff not for, as to what is individually paid, but what the person may need. And as much as those services seem to be uh, individually expensive, collectively the outcome results of stability um, make it work for everyone uh, when you can do it well. Thanks, Jenny. Trissa? Yeah, I also wanted to just make a quick comment relative to engaging patients in their own self-management. I think that um, one of the things that, that we see is that patients really want to be healthier. Um, so sometimes I hear people talking about how do we create incentives for patients, and, and patients have incentives. We want to be healthy as patients. We want to feel good. We want to not have pain. We want to not have to go to the doctor very often. At least most of us want that. Uh, and so I think the question is more how do we support patients in doing this? And I think the biggest part of what we can do to support them is listen and find out what their barriers are and then find ways to help them overcome their barriers. Uh, But part of this really relates back to the whole system redesign and team approach because the way we're set up historically when we have very brief uh, visits to the doctor uh, at most quarterly uh, that, you know, 15 minutes four times a year does not really create a support system to help patients engage in their own health and their own care. So we really need to think about that expanded team um, both within the clinical setting but outside the clinical setting and how to really engage natural caregivers like family members and friends to help also support patients. In, and so really it's around that whole system redesign and that broader approach that's going to get us to the point where we can really support patients. Thank you. Trissa, this, uh, I saw a randomized controlled trial of a community health worker intervention in Philadelphia that just had phenomenal reduction in hospital readmission in a Medicaid and uninsured population. And the intervention was very much community health worker, non-clinical, identifying issues that confounded that recently discharged person's probability of being successful in managing their condition in their local environment. Sometimes it was driving them to an appointment. Sometimes it was helping them get meds or understanding what was going on. None of it was clinical. Uh, obviously, there were clinical issues as well handled by the medical team, but the uh, that simple intervention at the community level had a profound impact on medical outcomes that are important to us all. So identifying those, thinking about not medicalizing the intervention, I think is one of the paths to success as we think about expanding our capacity beyond the walls of institutions and working with people in their local environments. Thanks, Gordon. Clay, can I um, ask you, just the last thing that Gordon just said, medicalizing, not always medicalizing the intervention. I'm wondering to what extent is that happening at all uh, at partners um, and with the uh, patients that are under some of the risk contracts. To, to what extent some of this sort of new thinking and maybe some new approaches um, are are finding their way in, into models there? And I hope that's not putting you on the spot. Appreciate any. No, that's great. And yeah. I think I have to say that you know the the opportunity there is huge. Um, and you know, being a, a medical system that is a, a profound culture change. But I think we all recognize that, particularly we have a large. Primary care base. Uh, we're trying to get all of our primary care offices to be patient-centered medical homes. Uh, whether or not you agree with the MCQA standards, but moving towards team-based care, high-risk care management. You know, we've got more and more people who really are focused on, on finding these needs. Uh, but it is building the right set of tools and engaging with the right partners in the community in a sustainable way. So I think we recognize the challenge. We do have pilots with community health workers, um, behavioral health specialists, with community resource specialists. Um, but it, you know, 
and I think we are optimistic on our ability to really move the needle on community health and population health through those sorts of interventions. But, you know, it's now been mentioned a couple of times until, you know, even our existing financial model um, doesn't incorporate the budgets. Now, I think the dual eligible, you know, demos were not in that yet, but we, uh, we would like to be at some time in the future, you know, gets us there. But how do you really integrate all of these services under one set of accountable? And actually, is the healthcare system the right, um, you know, person to be truly accountable? I want to be a partner. Do I need to be the one that is the lead holding the contract? I don't know. That is an open question, I think. Um, but we do need to partner with this broader team. So I, I echo what has been said before. Thank you very much. All kinds of interesting <laughs> things to be thinking about here. Thanks, Clay. Um, I think I want to, uh, maybe I'll just throw this out. Maybe, Trissy, you can start. You start. You made a reference before that payment models are becoming more aligned, where that had been something that a lot of the AAA communities were kind of bumping up against in, in the work here at IHI. And I have a question for anyone and everyone, which is, are there other policies uh, and and reforms that um, you don't have to give a whole digest, but some other things that would continue to sort of help in in this respect in terms of uh, payment models or more things. Trissa. So we've been talking about the payment models specifically for healthcare delivery, but I think also when we think more globally about how money flows, and and I'm going to go back to money for this one um, piece. You know, when we think some of the things we've been talking about uh, the social care system, and we know how much social um, social health and um, physical health and mental health and emotional health all come together. But within our uh, system in the United States, those are two completely separate funding streams. And even public health is outside of healthcare delivery. And so one thing that Clay just started to allude to, is there are beginning to be some models out there like community care organizations where they're looking at having someone outside of healthcare be the integrator where these funding streams could come together. And we've been talking about it as funding streams, um, but part of the reason is that because uh, that would become a facilitator then for different kinds of synergies and different kinds of interactions. So ultimately, other policies about how we govern things and about how we integrate and work together could uh, could really build on changes in payment systems. Thanks, Trissa. Jenny, you want to chime in on this or uh, any, uh, any other uh, stream in our conversation? right now? Go ahead. Um, yes, I'd, uh, relative to payment, uh, one of the areas that I'm familiar with from my previous work uh, at Unlock Pace is the whole concept of risk adjusting the payments. And uh, so there is, there are policies that are, are beginning to work on it. it. This is a very difficult situation uh, uh, just because it, it's hard to pull together the data to do, quote, really good risk adjustment. And uh, giving you an, a specific example is one of the things that we think is so important to risk adjust for people who are very complex and 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 uh, functionally, cognitively, and clinically frail, because this is a type of a client or patient that oftentimes uh, um, uh, practice groups will, will not be kind of uh, eager to embrace, because handling uh, the care in, in 15 minutes with the complexity is, is not sometimes an incentive. So having good policies that to uh, develop models of financial risk adjustment for allowing the providers to get paid um, appropriately and adequately to, for handle complexity will be a very key point of access. Uh, if we don't do that, what happens understandably is um, providers will prefer working with less complicated people with perhaps a good payment code and, and, and think about that uh, because if we don't risk adjustment appropriately, people will not want to handle tough clinical situations. And on top of that, you know, if you add behavioral health as well. So risk adjustment has been just identified by the most recent report from MedPAC earlier a few days ago uh, in their um, uh, biannual report is an area of, of more policy work that needs to get, me, uh, get done. 
Very, very helpful and very, very interesting. Thank you very much, uh, Jenny. Quick comment from John. Go ahead, John. All right. Thanks, Madge. Uh, Well, we know that a lot goes into transforming care for everyone, from every patient right up to these populations we've talked about this afternoon. IHI is here to help you accelerate your journey towards improving outcomes for your patient population while achieving financial vitality, stability, and sustainability. This September, we're offering the Population Management Executive Development Program to help healthcare providers learn best practices for leveraging financial models, integrating data systems, and leading change that optimizing provider and colleague engagement. A lot goes into transforming care, and a lot goes into learning how to transform care. We hope you'll join us this September. For more information, visit IHI.org or reach out to us at info at IHI.org. All right. Thanks so much, John. And uh, it's one way to get deeply into the more of uh, some of the weeds here, the important weeds, let's say, the weeds we want to keep of, of, of this discussion. Well, we are getting close to the top of the hour, so I think what we'll do is we'll go around the horn one more time and uh, get some kind of final thoughts or parting thoughts. Um, I um, Just because we still here at IHI love to say, what can you do by next Tuesday <laughs> as opposed to next year, um, even though we've got to be thinking about all of it. Um, but um, maybe just with that sort of spirit in mind, I'll start with you, Clay. Um, also sort of thinking about are there some, as you think about your populations? Are there some interesting things that can be done now, soon, uh, complex needs? Any, anything that uh, where you might see some uh, bright spots? Thanks. We'll start with Clay and then move around. Thanks. Absolutely. I mean, I think on the, on the populations, there's so many that, that need to be engaged with. My personal interest now is on patients, you know, post-hospitalization, the, um, <clears throat> all of the business cases that are aligning with the readmission penalties, MSPB penalties of so the hospitals are now engaged, as well as, um, you know, any uh, ACO or other total cost of care um, uh, risk holder. But I think the, you know, related to that comment, you know, if you do have a program, are you looking for partners? You know, you're trying to find pockets of risk. Don't just find the business case in the pockets of risk. Find other areas of urgency that can help support the projects that you do. One of the questions there on the on the on, um, about how do you engage boards? I mean, how do you find other people who are willing to create a sense of urgency? One element of urgency in the state of Massachusetts has honestly been the state house. Pushed, putting pressure on the entire state uh, for cost control. Um, so I think finding as many different pockets that can support your business case for your patient that you care about. Um, and there are a lot that are out there that can be aligned together. Okay. Thank you so much, uh, Clay Ackerley. Really uh, thrilled that you could be part of this conversation today. Gordon, some thoughts. Um, <laughs> what, what are you working on next week? No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> what, what kinds of uh, things would you like to leave us with today? Thanks. I'm excited by the state of Iowa, for instance, and the dominant commercial insurer, Wellmark, working in collaboration with Medicaid in the state, now covering 70% of Iowans with new payment models that do a better job of aligning payment with the kind of care delivery that we would all want. And so I'm, I'm proud of the stuff they're doing. I'm proud of the fact that Iowa's picking up a uh, health risk assessment that comes out of uh, John Wasson's work up at Dartmouth that begins to systematically unmask the patient's voice and needs and put that into play in care delivery. So I, I expect great, great things from Iowa as well as other states that are going to follow along. Thank you. Thank you, Gordon Moore, so much for being part of this discussion. Jenny? Um, Yes, I I probably would want to just reiterate something that uh, was brought up earlier, and that is um, let us not over-medicalize the system. Um, I think the pockets of success that we're hearing really involves oftentimes uh, people in the communities, family members. I think our ability to return to thinking about health and well-being coupled with handling these tough situations that do arise for us and help um, you know, us get back to steady state. So those of us who are technically formal professionals you know, have a, a key role, without a doubt, but uh, not to um, undervalue uh, the role of, of, of a wider network uh, that I alluded to, you know, uh, really occupy the 365 days of, of most people's lives. And, and, and starting to move that frame from that illness to both wellness and, and health maintenance and quality of life. 
All right. Thank you, Jenny Chin Hansen. And uh, I really um, am so grateful that you could join us. And Trissa. So just when I think about uh, population management and if there's organizations that are just starting on this journey or if you're on this journey and and trying to accelerate, from the perspective of whether you're a clinician or a leader, I think two of the most important things you can do, uh, biting off a little bit at a time that you could start right away, is start to understand your population segments. Um, Who really are you caring for? Um, What are the different age uh, segments that you have? What is the complexity? How many people are really sick? How many people have two? more chronic diseases? Uh, How many people are asking for more help? How many people are you not able to engage? And really starting to understand those population segments. Um, And then from there, of course, you can start thinking about redesigning care for those segments. But first is the understanding. And then the second thing I could say where you could bite off a little piece uh, to get started by next Tuesday. When we know we're going to move to these new approaches of um, really starting to engage patients more, of thinking about broader care teams and about engaging with the uh, other community services, test one new idea with one patient next next week, whether it's a different way of listening to a patient or whether it's leveraging a patient case to engage with a community service that you've never engaged with before and partner with them to bring something to that patient. Test it with one patient, and then once you have a success, figure out how to build up from there. All right. Start small and take it to scale um, and, um, and all the things in between. You've been a terrific panel today. My sincere thanks. I want to thank our wonderful audience. We are at the top of the hour, just a minute or so over. My apologies, but we're about, we're wrapping up right now. I want to thank our guests. I also want to uh, give a shout out to Azim Malik, who really, uh, Malik, who was so helpful uh, with the coordination of our program today. Next up on WIHI on July 24th, we have a little bit of a summer break. Um, slipping away on vacation, but I'll be back. Um, we have some interesting uh, discussion to have about pre-hospital uh, care and the continuum uh, for time-sensitive care. And uh, that's on the 24th, and that webpage is live as well. A reminder, when you get off this program today, you can download the chat, any slides we used. Uh, we'd very much appreciate your filling out a brief survey and then look for the archived page for this program. By tomorrow morning, you can find all the elements uh, that we shared today along with the audio. Any questions whatsoever, you can email info at IHI.org and always feel free to suggest future show topics that build on this or something else you're thinking about. I want to thank everybody who chatted back and forth with one another, who asked questions. There were a lot of issues also in here about workforce, which we didn't get to as much. We've done on some other shows, but I want to tell those folks that we really appreciated your thoughts on that. And the people who helped make WIHI possible are Jameson Case, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, and Matt Morse, and Tala Al-Gussain. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care, most of all, for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Thanks, everyone. I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day. Good day.